Mr. Owl, how many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll center of a Tootsie Pop? A good question. Let's find out. One, two, three, three. If there's anything I can't stand, it's a smart owl. Hi, and welcome to the Brewery FM podcast, hosted by Scott Hogue and Dan Usher. Just two techies separated by a giant blue ocean talking cloud, string theory, technology, Office 365 groups, DNS cache and OSX, and many more things. I'm Dan Usher. This is episode 17, recorded on 28 May 2015. So, uh, Dan, it's going to be a smorgasbord of identity today, huh? Uh, yeah, today is going to be a smorgasbord. I believe we are uh, recording episode 17. Is that right? Has it been 17 weeks? Uh, it has. It's well, it, It's been a couple of weeks here and there. Uh, is 17 a couple or is that a few? Um, I, I, I get confused about the ruling behind that sometimes. We're into uh, four and a quarter months, man. Ooh, sweet. So not only is it a smorgasbord of identity today, but we've had a cult board or cold board of uh, shows. Uh, yeah, you could say that. Um, I, I lost you with my Norwegian, didn't I? You did. Mm-hmm. It happens. Hmm. So, uh, Scott, I know, like you said, we have a smorgasbord of things today. Uh if folks wanted to like get the quick and dirty list of things, where would they go? Oh, that would be very easy. So we publish show notes for each episode out on our website of uh, brewery.fm. Uh, so if anybody wanted to go and find back episodes, they could go there and click around on links and things like that. Uh, if they wanted to find the show notes for this particular episode, uh, we publish those out to some special URLs through the pub. So those are pub.brewery.fm. Uh, and then we just go by episode number. So this is episode number uh, 17. So this would be pub.brewery.fm slash brewery 017. And uh, wham, bam, that would be it. You would be right at the show notes for this episode, which would have uh, links to all the things we've talked about. Uh, and it also has some helpful links to hook up with us some other ways through uh, social media and our uh, personal brand. Uh, so you can get a hold of us through email at info at brewery.fm. We'd love to have questions, comments, feedback. Uh, we also maintain a Facebook page, uh, and we're on Twitter as well at, at brewery FM. Cool. So if, uh, folks do have feedback, you know, we're always open to it via email, like Scott mentioned. Uh, if you want to send us something, uh, via email with a question, though, be warned. We will ask you for your shipping address so that we can send you a ninja cat riding a unicorn uh, that's breathing fire. So be warned. That is uh, kind of a little giveaway. Um, so anyway, uh, not being distracted too much so early on. Um, figured go ahead and hit some of the follow-up. And this week, uh, fortunately, we don't have too much follow-up. But... Um, so last week, I don't think we covered this per se, but Apple went out and they re-released the uh, MacBook Pro 15-inch. Uh, they did not bump it up to a Haswell. They kept it at a broad, or excuse me, they kept it as a Haswell 
with a new processor and they seem to have replaced the battery. Well, not the battery. Uh, they replaced the trackpad with a force touch trackpad. So nothing too exciting, unfortunately. Um, somehow though, they were able to add an hour of battery life to it. Um, seems kind of interesting. They did that. There's been a little bit of, uh, talk around the internet about, you know, whether they went in and did what they did with the, uh, the MacBook one or the MacBook MacBook, if you want to call it that, um, and did like the layered batteries. So any thoughts on, uh, on the battery life, how they might've extended that? Well, there's a couple things, right? Uh, we, we, we talked about the laptop last week, so they have new GPUs. Uh, so those might be a little more efficient. Uh, and then they typically have optimizations based on the model built directly into the OS as well. So that's how they eke out uh, some extra battery life in things like the uh, MacBook One or the MacBook Airs, uh, kind of everything across the line. So one of the really interesting things about that is uh, th those new MacBook Pro 15s are the first uh, MacBook laptops that can support uh, 5K displays. So those can actually drive uh, the same screen that's on the um, uh, the new iMacs, the Retina iMacs. So that'll be interesting. Maybe we'll see some new uh, cinema displays coming out shortly because those are getting uh, very long in the tooth. So what you're basically telling me is uh, be ready to hand Apple my wallet and say, take my money. Yeah, if you want to, if, if you're liking some of the things that they've got going on and you're in the market for a new laptop, then uh, usually you can't go too wrong with Apple hardware. Uh, you know, even for all the quirks or qualms that people might have with the OS, uh, the hardware has always been top notch. Quite true, quite true. I guess I'm uh, I'm kind of curious, though, also if uh, WWDC, I guess that's next week or two weeks from now, uh, what they're going to do in terms of, you know, optimization. So there's been a lot of talk, I guess, in terms of optimizations that are going to be coming out for uh, iOS 9.0 and OS X 10.11. Um, personally, my hope is, is they would figure out some way to extend battery life in some way, shape or form. But uh, I don't know, maybe it'll just be you know, they, they've made mention that they're going to replace the default font with the San Francisco font, which is the, uh, the watch kid font. So maybe that's, that's what 10.11 will be. That's it. Uh, well, I, before that, so the new betas for, uh, 10.4.4 are out or 10.11.4, whatever the heck, what, what are we up to now? Yeah. Uh, 10.10.4. Oh, sheesh. Uh, so those are hitting their basically their like early preview or insider program. Um, and I don't know if you have a lot of Apple devices running around your house, but uh, I have quite a few things. So I have uh, iPads and a couple Apple TVs and things like that and, and the PCs. Uh, so when they released 10.10, they had a new uh, process in there for um, kind of doing... Uh, DNS discovery and things like that. And it interacted with Bonjour networking and some other things. So that was called Discovery D. And Discovery D is kind of a, a mess. So they had a system that used to work back in 10.9. Uh, and that was called MDNS Responder. And that worked beautifully. If I add a new Apple TV to my network, um, I would just give it a name. I would say, you know, like this is uh, the Apple TV for the lounge. So it's the lounge Apple TV. 
and it would forever be known as the lounge Apple TV on my network, and that would be awesome. Um, Discovery D has this nasty habit of losing track of things. So right now I have like three or four lounge Apple TVs. So I have like a lounge Apple TV and then parentheses two and a lounge Apple TV parentheses four kind of thing running around on my network just because of the way mm, Discovery D interacts with Bonjour and reaches out and makes sure things are awake and doing what they need to do. So in 10.10.4, uh, it's they just ripped it out completely. It went back to MDNS responder. Uh, and all of a sudden, it seems like things are going to start to work uh, quite a bit better. So I'm pretty excited about that one because, you know, sometimes people think like I'm crazy when they come over to the house and they go, why do you have four lounge Apple TVs? I don't. It's just Apple's crappy DNS system. So, well, that, that would actually lead me to ask the question of why are people going through and uh, doing an in-map of your network and finding all those different uh, cached DNS entries? <laughs> Oh, it's not about doing an Nmap, right? If somebody comes over to the house and they want to be able to airplay to an Apple TV, it just shows up. So that's that's Bonjour networking at its finest, right? Um, so they can do that, or I can add them into my home sharing group. You know, they want to show like a, a family video or something like that, and just uh, cast it over with AirPlay. Uh, super easy to do. So that's why that stuff is there. It's just the naming convention behind it is broken. So, you know, that broke things like Apple TV, you know, it made like the, the, the names look weird when you looked them up, uh, but it also had strange side effects on your uh, laptop as well, or, or your your Apple desktop laptop, whatever whatever it was that was running OS X proper, uh, you, you know, so those would end up with those parentheses after them as well. So that should all get cleared up, uh, which will be really nice. So <clears throat> I guess uh, for myself... I discovered the uh, the kill all um, MDNS responder command that you can run in term to reset your DNS cache. You know, every so often uh, your network goes nuts, and you just gotta you gotta clear the cache. And I know most people they probably know the IP config uh, flush, and that uh, that takes care of flushing your DNS. So you have a you know it'll go out to your uh, your DNS host and say, hey, where's this IP address really at? Um, so I kind gotten used to that and then i guess when yosemite came around uh like you mentioned they they flipped it over to the discovery util uh for all the dns so i I read the same article a couple days ago or a day ago i guess and i was like you're kidding me this was like supposed to be one of those cool enhancements and things that they included in yosemite to get away from uh the mdns responder so I, i guess you know it's kind of that uh that old story of if it ain't broke don't fix it so Bygones be bygones. I guess that's just what it is. Yeah, no, it, it wasn't that at all. Nobody knows uh, why they redid the the process, right? Uh, the, it was never talked about at WDDC, uh, WWDC last year or anything like that. They, they just ripped it out without warning, and then they put in this crappier um, thing. Uh, and there, there were hacks that you could go out. So like today, if you're on 10.10.3, you can actually go out and replace Discovery D with MDNS Responder because it's still around. And it works just fine. Um, you know, there was some speculation that maybe you needed it for um, handoff or some of those kind of like continuity features between iOS and OS X. Uh, it turns out that's not the case at all. Like if you rip Discovery D out today, those things continue to function just fine. 
Um, so there, there's probably somebody in their engineering group who's eating a lot of crow around, uh, you know, oops, we made a mistake. We thought we could do better. Maybe we should have tested it a little bit better or something like that. So, uh, I, I would imagine we'll see that networking stack make a comeback at some point. It's just a matter of, uh, you know, they, they've got to get all their ducks in a row if they want to continue to push so many of these devices out. Yeah, I guess I just, like you mentioned, uh, why did they go through and change it? Who knows? Um, but, uh, you know, in that Mac world, um, like I mentioned, uh, and I guess you also kind of mentioned, um, they tweaked the battery life on the uh, the new 15-inch. And to me, uh, I guess, you know, uh, it, Apple will continue to tout, hey, you can get nine hours, ten hours, how many of your hours – but it always seems slightly slanted in the sense that, yes, you can get nine hours if you're using our applications and you haven't installed any other you know, uh, app of any sort that either is uh, sandboxed through the App Store or something manually installed like uh, Bartender was. So it always just kind of kills me. And I think to me the biggest defender, and maybe you don't notice this as much, but whenever I take my MacBook Pro – I take it off to Starbucks or I take it to a library or I take it to the couch. I usually don't tote my power cord with me. You know, I'll bust it out when I need to, but I'll try and run off just battery for the time being. So Chrome, while a great browser to use on OS X, uh, tends to eat the battery like crazy. Um, I, I don't know if you've had the same experience, but if you look in like your process monitor, you'll notice that you've probably got like 38 instances of Chrome because it's going through and doing its own sandboxing of each app and extension that you've got as a part of it. So I don't know. I, I've slowly but surely been trying to get back to either uh, using Firefox, which admittedly seems a little bit slimmer than it used to be, or just using out-of-the-box Safari. Um, any thoughts there? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So... Uh- you're, Firefox, you're allowed to disagree with me. We established that that last week. So. Yeah, I, Firefox is pretty horrible. It's not that great these days. Uh, personally, I'm a huge fan of Chrome. I use it across OS X and uh, iOS, and I use it on Windows and the Mac and everything else. Uh, yeah, it has some problems on the Mac, right? But you can't necessarily um, ding Apple for that. You know, you said like, oh, Apple's battery numbers aren't great. Their battery numbers are stellar. Like, what are they supposed to do when they're testing? They're supposed to go throw every third-party app on there and test for battery life. That's not their job, and no other company does that either, right? Lenovo or, you know, Microsoft doesn't do that with the surfaces or things like that. They say this is the way it works out of the box. Um, you know, this is kind of best-case ca- best um, scenario kind of stuff. Um, Chrome does suck down the battery life a little bit, but y- you can mitigate some of that, right? Do you really need to run all the extensions you run, you really need to run all the background processes and everything else that are coming through. Um, you know, usually, I, like I said, I, I'm so dependent on Chrome and um, the bookmarks and the extension system and things like that. And the way I use it, it it's worth it for the battery trade-off. Um, or, you know, if you know you're going to need it, just bring your power cord along. Uh, you know, you go to Starbucks and things like that. There's usually a PowerPoint someplace in there. Flip the switch and uh, go to town on it. Or, you know, you kind of have to adapt your your habits based on what you need. If Safari works better for you, then awesome. You know, get, go with Safari. There's going to be different things that work for 
uh, you know, different folks across the board. Yeah, I mean, I guess my reason for uh, for reinvestigating how well or how not well Firefox works is due to the fact that uh, there is no Safari for Windows anymore. And I think the last version they had out there was something like 7.5. Um, so unfortunately, not out there, so can't really do synchronization of tabs and things like that. Yeah. Um, Maybe I'll give it another chance. I did read this story a couple days ago about this uh, this thing called the Great Suspender um, from Suspension Labs. It's an extension for Chrome that effectively will uh, put different tabs to sleep. Um, and apparently, you can go through and you know configure it so that uh, uh, certain tabs or certain uh, pages never go to sleep, just in case you want them to always be awake. Uh, so I, I might give that a try to see if it helps with the battery life. We'll see. Yeah, um, I use one of something similar. It's called OneTap. Um, works just fine for kind of pushing things to the background. Um, you, you know, no matter what browser you're using, if you're walking around with 30 or 40 tabs open, you're going to be chewing up so, some memory and other things. Uh, you know, if you're going to use Safari and you do want some of the bookmark synchronization and things like that, I believe you can get that with like the iCloud um, client for Windows. So th that'll let you do some of those uh, bits and pieces, but then you've got to use, uh, I believe, Internet Explorer uh, on Windows. And I'm, I'm not a huge fan of IE for day-to-day -day browsing, things like that. There's only one or two websites that I still need, need it for, and they're kind of like legacy things sometimes, you know, like uh, entering my time at, at work and things like that. You know, that's stuck in, the, in that one. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just... Uh, I, I use the tooling that works for me. And if you know, the battery life has to suffer a little bit because uh, those are the tools that help me get through my day, uh, then so be it. I'll sacrifice the battery life to um, continue to have those things. Yeah, I guess, uh, <clears throat> you know, I thought at least for you, the only browser you used on Windows these days was Edge. Nope. I'm still Chrome all the way. You know, I could have sworn you were using that little Dell Venue Pro like a champ, but I guess not. Uh, I, I, <laughs> you know, I turn it on once a week to run updates. Uh, I still don't run Edge on there. I, I still run Chrome. Sorry. No, no worries. Um, so some other, uh, I guess, quick run through. Uh, if you go out to that IT Pro network for Office 365, I guess it's now the Office 365 network, a.k.a. the Microsoft public network, Um seems like uh, the Office 365 Group's Yam Jam has gotten a little bit more feedback, so there were still some you know, lingering questions that were kind of left out there. Uh, some of the Microsoft engineers have gone in since and added some additional input, so for those of you that uh, are investigating groups and interested in what the capabilities are, so on and so forth, uh, that's probably something you want to go check out. Uh, you might also know, notice that uh, Microsoft, after their move, um, while we talked about kind of the performance and whatnot, uh, the Office 365 network, I believe it got a nice uh, a UI makeover. So if you get a chance, go check it out. It looks pretty spiffy. Yeah, well, that's just the general UI stuff pushing out for all of Yammer, right? Everybody is kind of, every, every tenant is picking those up, so... Uh, they're, they're slowly iterating on some of that stuff. And then Yammer is still doing their weird 
A-B testing for UI stuff. You know, they move icons around and things randomly around on the screen. And uh, it'd be nice to see them adopt maybe some more of the uh, Office 365 features. Like, uh, I know there's some organizations that would love to have, like, a first release button for Yammer. Like, stop moving my stuff around every other day. Uh, I don't know how they still get away with that or or how that's still built into the culture because I know a lot of people complain about it. Um, but, you know, they're slowly but surely picking up little bits and pieces here and there. Yeah, so how they manage that is uh, most people just complain. And, uh, yeah, I, I wish there was a user voice for Yammer, but unfortunately there's not. It's the one product out there where I think they pretty much say, oh, you should go to the Yammer customer network, which is now part of the Office 365 network, uh, and convey your feedback there and have conversations back and forth as to why some function should or should not be implemented. Yeah, from what I've seen, that team has... mm, Every time I've seen it brought up for things like the A-B testing for UI, they'll come back and they'll say, well, based on our telemetry, um, you know, this is what we see. But then you never see the telemetry. And unfortunately, uh, Yammer works under that model where uh, what works great for one organization is going to work great for every organization. So having just a little bit more flexibility there might be really nice uh, for some organizations, right? Maybe maybe it's one of those things where um, it should be like on by default, like, hey, um, let, let the UI group at Yammer screw with me. Uh, maybe there needs to be a button for that. Uh, but I'd be willing to bet there's at least a a small subset of Yammer subscribers that would really like to turn features like that off or just dial them back just a little bit. True, but I don't think that's something you can necessarily do since, uh, I mean, it is multi-tenant, right? Mm, well, you can do it, right? Office 365 does it for first release stuff, and that's totally multi-tenant. So they figured out a way around it. Um, it's just a matter of how they do deployments and how they kind of build and architect the backend. So maybe they're not built or architected for it today, uh, but it's probably something they need to start to think about, especially as uh, we continue to focus on that as the funnel for Office 365 social. It's not great when Office 365 iterates um, at a kind of, you know, for as fast as it goes, it's way steadier than Yammer at the end of the day. Oh, yeah. No, no disagreement there. I mean, at least uh, they have some sense of, and man, I hate hate saying this, but if you look at uh, the way they do Office 365 uh, releases, um, those things, they must be checked. Like, you can't tell me they're not checked multiple times before they actually make it out to the tenants that you and I get to um, as, you know, actual paying subscribers, because that's... They use they have to use the same processes that they use for uh, SharePoint patch release management, which, admittedly, sometimes is not the greatest. Uh, <laughs> um, but I have rarely seen um, functionality on SharePoint Online go down, which tells me either they're doing things in an incredibly awesome fashion with patch management through multiple layers, like you should do in some sort of application lifecycle management. Or uh, they are just have been really, really lucky. And I know 
uh, if you go into your admin portal every so often, you will see, you know, something where it's like restoring and you scratch your head and you go, uh, what happened? And you look and it's some minute uh, case of, you know, why a certain functionality does not work for a certain developer. Um, and so they're having to roll back to a previous version of something. But a lot of that just, it seems to be abstracted, whereas... Uh, at least the way the UI gets pushed out and some of the functionality for Yammer, it, it does not seem like they have any sort of uh, test bed outside of just, you know, the systems that are operational for people to hit and use for their daily collaboration. Maybe I'm wrong. I just That's just kind of the way I see it. No, I, they purposely use that as a test bed. So the Yammer UI team has come out and said that. They like to do A-B testing with real users. That's how they've built their service and that's how they do it. Um, fundamentally, it started off as a SaaS product, right? So it, like you talk about like patching in uh, Office 365 or like Exchange Online, SharePoint Online, like the way that works today is going to be the way that it's going to work for us in the 2016 server releases because Microsoft learned how horrible that stuff was. Um, some of these things, like the way Yammer does UI testing, it's been horrible from the beginning, but hey, that's the way they've done it from the beginning. So it's just ingrained into the culture and the way they do things. I don't, I don't necessarily know that maybe saying they don't care isn't the right thing, uh, but th there doesn't seem to be an interest to change it, or maybe they haven't had customers that are big enough that are um, kind of worrying about it. You know, some of the larger networks, like you look at like a company like Microsoft, they leverage Yammer internally. Um, but you know, I, I would be willing to bet that Microsoft's dog fooding so much stuff that for, you know, the hundred thousand plus users that they might have out there on the, on their Yammer network, um, they just tell them, Hey, live with it. You know, we're, we're, uh, we're kind of the vendor and, and you've got to deal with all these new latest and greatest things. Um, but there are some other organizations, you know, that just have just as many users as Microsoft that again, they might, they might not like that, or they might not want to go down that path, but there, there doesn't seem to be too much of a, uh, too much of a voice there. And, you know, as much as they said, Yammer, um, isn't going away, it definitely seemed to take a backseat from the outside at things like Ignite. Um, so maybe some of that um, worrisome stuff goes away as things like uh, groups come back into the play or come back into the fray, right? Maybe. Uh, I think that's probably one of those things that is still, I don't know, I, I feel like maybe it's just because I still haven't watched all the IT Pro uh, videos from Ignite, but I still kind of feel like I'm lost in the fray when it comes to uh, groups and Yammer and all that jazz. Yeah, I mean, to be, to be brutally honest, I don't use Yammer that much these days. I used to be um, a big fan of it, but now they've kind of offloaded so many of the side bits just into Office 365 in general. Uh, so I will use it in the places where it's abstracted out. So if you're uh, editing a document in Word Online from a document library, uh, you know, you can just go ahead and make comments in Yammer and then it's right there. But I don't have to hop all the way over to Yammer to see that. Um, I've basically blacklisted all the emails because, you know, you get like your daily summary and in most cases those were useless to me. Uh, a lot of the functionality is just like horrible. You know, you know, if you're a member of many networks, like the things where, um, you know, uh, like a network manager pushes out an announcement. 
And all of a sudden you see that like, oh, hey, I've got this thing in my inbox. And then maybe you don't visit that network, you know, more than once or twice a week. Right. So uh, take the Office 365 tech network or some of the partner networks, things like that. You know, they push things out and you go in there and you've got this inbox in Yammer that says, oh, you've got like 10 messages. Great. I don't care about any of them because none of them were actually pushed to me, but I've still got to go through one by one and click each one. You know, so to me, it's so annoying to use the tooling sometimes that I'd just rather go and use something else right off the bat. You mean something like email? Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, I think we're all probably big offenders of that one. But no, I, I agree. I mean, it's, it's that thing of until the tool shows value to me, I'm probably not going to use it. Uh, to get my job done. And I'm not saying Yammer doesn't help me get my job done because it's useful in some instances. Uh, groups in the same way I've been experimenting with um, since they're available through first release. But, you know, there's always tried and true SMS messages or email. So that's uh, pretty handy to me. Uh, so I know we wanted to talk a lot about identity, but uh, one last piece of follow-up. Um, if you haven't gotten a chance, I know we mentioned this last week, uh, about uh, Outlook changing their UI and whatnot. Um, they also opened up a user voice for it. Uh, I've submitted a couple things out there, one of which they said is under review, which I was like, yay, that's great, fantastic. Hope they actually do something about it. Um, there are a couple out there that uh, just kind of made me chuckle, though. One was uh, about identity and merging your Microsoft account with a... Uh, Office 365 account and having basically like a combined mailbox through a web browser. Um, and people were kind of like, well, why can't you do this, Microsoft? Why can't you merge my two accounts for me and my two mailboxes for me? And I, I get the feeling a lot of consumers out there still don't get that, you know, Outlook.com or Hotmail.com isn't running on top of Exchange. And if it is, huh, cool. Um, man, have they really done an interesting job on top of it. Um, but that being said, uh, just the idea of you know taking two identities, uh, one that is a Microsoft account, which has some structure running on some sort of LDAP that uh, I think originally had the name of like Hailstorm and then was transferred over to the name of Passport and then became Live IDs. Um, and now are Microsoft IDs. Uh, I think it's just, uh, it's kind of funny to see that. Um, consumers wanting these things and maybe Microsoft will uh, get crushed underneath the weight of it and, you know, eventually give in and make it so that you can merge uh, a Microsoft account with a work account or a organization ID as it used to be known. Uh, but I just, <laughs> I'll, I'll just say the Outlook user voice, if you get a chance, go check it out. Um, it's uh, interesting to read through some of the different ideas that consumers are throwing out there. Yeah, it, it, it's tough, right? So there's some ways that you, um, as a user, can mitigate this today. Uh, so if you're talking things like email, uh, you could use an email client that has a unified inbox. So like Outlook for iOS and Outlook for Android. Uh, so they're all based on that old uh, Accompli uh, acquisition that they had. Um, those let you add both those addresses in there and just have unified inbox and boom, you're off to the races and running. Um, in some cases, I think that's a lot harder for them to build out on the website uh, just because typically when you're accessing something like Office 365, you're accessing it through that single identity. 
So then all of a sudden merging in all these other things can get a little confusing. You know, if, um, take something like Google, for instance, right? So if you have multiple uh, Google accounts, so, you know, you're like Dan at gmail.com and maybe you're like Usher at gmail.com because uh, you want to separate your personal life and your country music career. So even if you do something like that in Google and you go in and you can sign in to both of them at the same time, but you never actually see both of them at the same time. So you'll end up with just a little drop down that says, hey, I need to hop back and forth between these multiple identities. Um, I don't necessarily want to sign out. I don't want to have to go back to a sign in screen and do all that uh, kind of hard stuff that just gets in my way. Right. I don't want to have to put in my password and everything again but I really would like to see what's going on over in this other place. Maybe there's uh, options for them to start doing something like that, but kind of unifying and pushing everything together, especially when they're disparate systems that serve different purposes, that can be a little hard. So I, th I think there's some tooling that we can use kind of on the front end for ourselves as far as um, applications, uh, whether they're on mobile or desktop or something like that, that can help us out. And then we've got to wait for some things to catch up uh, on the back end, right? So anyway, uh, you, you know, there's applications that can help us fix that on the front end. Uh, the, the back end's a little harder in there to keep things going and really unify everything. And in some cases, you might not want to. So I have, I, I would really like to merge some of my Microsoft accounts with my work IDs where they make sense. Uh, so, you know, like I have, um, my work email, you know, scott.hoag at contoso.com. Um, and I have an office 365 tenancy with that. And I have a Microsoft account with that. And maybe I have a Microsoft account that's been added into some Azure subscriptions and things like that. So in that case, it'd be really nice to merge. And then there's other times where really like a full merge isn't going to cut it. So like my MSDN account is tied to my personal Gmail, not my work thing. Cause they didn't have the concept of tying your MSDN to your work IDs way back in the day when we started out doing this stuff, you know, like five years ago. Uh, so it's kind of tough to figure out. I, I can see where they struggle with that, coming back and saying, well, what are we going to merge? What are we not going to merge? What are we going to put in? And then, oops, what if I merge it? But then I really wanted to break it out again later because there was something in there. Because, you know, folks are going to want to do that too. They're going to say, put it all together. And then three days later, they're going to say, oh man, this stinks. Let's rip it all back apart. And it's, it's just not easy. That stuff is really hard to do. Yeah. And I mean, the other, the other thing to think about in that is you've got uh, all these different business systems where folks talk about wanting role-based access control. Um, so how do I differentiate, uh, you know, your work account and your personal account that you've now merged together into one, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those questions of, well, how do we how do we do that now? Crap, we've got to go and separate those two accounts. And oh man, we just we just merged all of his ACLs on his content. Uh, how do we pull those back? So yeah, and I think uh, I think when uh, Google bought Grand Central, for instance, um, a lot of folks were kind of banging on the door saying, "Hey, why isn't this immediately available with you know Google login on day one?" and uh, I think it took somewhere in the ballpark of like a year for them to have integrated authentication um, when they pushed out uh, Grand Central kind of V2, and then they eventually made it into Google Voice. But that was uh, that was one of those that also you know took a while. Um, do you remember? Do you use TweetDeck at all, or are you just a Twitter guy or a TweetBot guy? 
Uh, I used to use TweetDeck. I still have my unified account laying around. So TweetDeck uh, was the same kind of thing, right? You had an account and then you associated multiple Twitter or Facebook accounts with it. Um, I think today they let you just go and uh, Twitter owns TweetDeck now, right? And they push that product stack out. So they let you just go in and sign in with a Twitter account and then add additional ones in there. Um, yeah, I mean, like the things aren't easy, right? We see this time and time again, whether it's, uh, you know, these big companies like uh, Google or Microsoft, you know, making acquisitions and doing things, you know. Um, back to Yammer, that's another great example. So Yammer has or had their own identity stack when Microsoft bought them, right? So doing federation and things like that in Yammer required completely different tooling and everything else. I mean, what did it take them, a year and a half, two years before you could do like a unified Office 365 login over to the resources on the back end on that side? Uh, it takes a long time to put those things together. Um, you know, not everything's always stored uh, in the same way across systems. You know, we look at something, you know, you, know, you and I, we do uh, SharePoint migrations uh, so looking at like identity and SharePoint and sometimes the way those things are stored. So, you know, if we're doing something like uh, classic versus claims or even claims to claims, right? There, there's a big difference between an integrated Windows identity claim uh, versus something that's coming from uh, ADFS or another identity provider, right? It's that whole, what does my user string look like? I'm not always scott.hogue at contoso.com. I could be like I colon W... Uh, scott.hogue and then that's my windows identity or i could be i colon t and then you know that's my adfs identity and as far as something like sharepoint's concerned those are two different people i'm one user but i could really have two different identities as far as the system's concerned so um you know it's one thing to expect these things on day one but i think folks need to realize how hard it is to make all those bits and pieces work and plan through them because um, we we do go through this in our own systems. So you can imagine, you know, your system with, uh, you know, five users or, you know, tens of thousands of users and going through and doing those bits and pieces. Uh, but then try and imagine doing it on like one of these actual uh, like multi-tenant scales. So taking something uh, like Google Voice or Grand Central and saying, okay, I need to bring this over to hundreds of thousands of customers or millions of customers at the same time and making sure that goes smoothly. That's, that's a tall order and it's got to be done properly because if it's not done properly, you've really screwed uh, some big things up, right? And, and the biggest thing you've screwed up is your users' access to your system. And if your users can't access your system, your system is kind of useless. Yeah, I think, jeez. Uh, uh, so I did a little quick look up, and the the bit about Yammer that you were mentioning, uh, they got acquired back in late June of 2012. So I think it was, what, last November, December, January? It, it was recent, but I unfortunately uh, do not remember quite when it was that they said, yes, you can now use Yammer uh, logins from Office 365. Um, so it was recent, so probably sometime in the past six months, but it took a while. Um, that wasn't something overnight. And while they had the tooling and whatnot for things like directory synchronization uh, to sort of use the same tooling uh, as you were using for your Azure Active Directory, it was still that other identity store. So, 
Yeah, it's oh, man, it's it's mind blowing when you start thinking about all the back engineering you have to do to get that to work. Um, I think uh, you know you start looking at it, and for us, uh, you know, our day to day life um, working SharePoint migrations, uh, especially with the on premises systems, it always. I'm not even talking migration, uh, but just you know managing user identity has always been one of those pain points. So. Uh, I believe it was SharePoint 2013 that they pretty much said, no, you really do have to have a directory uh, uh, that you're connecting all this to in terms of like uh, AD um, network to connect to. So ADDS, um, you, you couldn't just uh, do an all-in-one and expect things like uh, audiences or uh, workflows to fire properly. You actually needed to have a domain controller working and all that in place. But, you know, back in the olden days, back in our SharePoint 03, SharePoint 07 days, uh, it always cracked me up when a developer would come in and they'd say, hey, uh, I seem to be having this problem. I took this backup and recovery and I put it on this other server and for some reason it doesn't work. And of course, you know, first thing I think is, oh, okay, uh, is it in the same domain? And they'd look at me blankly, uh, deer in headlights, and they'd say, domain? What's a, what's a domain? And I'd be like, oh, crap. Um, so then we turn around and we look at, uh, you know, are they using the same uh, server name? Are they using the same local computer name for their all-in-one that they happen to be using? Um, and really, quite honestly, that didn't really matter. I could have the same uh, <laughs> local computer name and the SID or the security ID in the background would be different. So always reminding users, hey, you still got to go in and you still have to go uh, do that move SP user with PowerShell these days or run that migrate user with STS ADM. Um, and that was just, that was painful, but it was something that you had to do if you wanted to make certain that those identities actually locked in and had the control, uh, had the access authorization they were supposed to. Um, I don't know about you, but that was, that just always kind of made me giggle and planning those migrations as well. Whenever someone would say, oh, we want to take our SharePoint environment, have it in one domain, and then drop it, uh, put it into another domain because we're doing a domain shift, this shouldn't be hard, right? Um, those were always the ones that just made me laugh because the user identity and the user ACLs were always something where it was just something that uh, it was always never really thought about as being a key thing. But you know, we have SharePoint uh, online and Office 365, and it's all about personalized content. Just think if you're doing a migration to like Office 365 and you don't uh, take into consideration that you need to map the identities, uh, it's not going to be personalized, is it? Yeah, it's, um, you know, you mentioned things like move SP user and things like that. Uh, that comes into play quite a bit of the time. So, um, I know especially when Microsoft made this shift from 2010 to 2013 and they said, okay, uh, classic is going to be deprecated and we really want everybody to get onto the claims bandwagon. So mm, it, it's really easy to get behind that from a technology perspective because you can see that's where things are going and it makes things quite a bit easier or um quite a bit more flexible, right? When it comes into the development of the product stack, or if you're going to build anything on top of it yourself, uh, you know, having access to kind of the latest and greatest ways to do development are always nice. You know, we, we want to be able to do OAuth and, and things like that. And um, it's very interesting when you come across and you do something like um, 
you know, you can do that classic to claims migration on a SharePoint side, and there's some tooling built in to help you do that. And unfortunately, it seems like there's always some things that break along the way. Uh, I've done a couple migrations for clients where we do things uh, like we go from a Windows claim to uh, something like an ADFS claim. Uh, so maybe we're trying to kind of unify our identity systems across, um, you know, if we're picking up Office 365 or something like that. Or I've even had organizations where they say, uh, we want to start to give our users uh, access from something like home. So we're going to publish through ADFS. And you go, all right, sweet. That's awesome. Uh, we can definitely do that. But then again, we get into that situation where how are you going to identify users when they come in? Well, they're going to come in from the outside through ADFS. Cool. What's that going to look like? Oh, well, they're going to come through as I colon T whatever. They're going to come through with their UPN. Uh, how do you identify them internally? Oh, we don't identify them by uh, UPN. We identify them by SAM account name. All right, well, suddenly those are two different users. And um, so what happens when you need to give Dan access to the HR site? Well, I'm going to go into the people picker and I'm going to add Dan. Uh, which Dan are you going to add? I'm going to add Dan Usher. Well, which Dan Usher are you going to add? Because there's going to be two Dan Ushers there. Uh, why is there going to be two? Well, because one's coming from over here and one's coming from over here. But those are tied to the same identity store. Yes, but when they're stored inside of SharePoint, they're stored as separate identities. So you need to plan that out and, and see what happens. Um, so I, you know, you know, I know we go through those kind of migrations quite a bit. Uh, the other one that happens uh, is, uh, you, you know, for a while there was there was this messaging of. Um, you know, if you're going to use things like Office 365 and you want SharePoint on-premises and everything else, let's stand up ADFS and let's do something like uh, SSO. So there's kind of native support in SharePoint 2013 to say, let's go ahead and hook you up to ADFS and start pulling in users um, from that uh, from that identity store. But the problem is, is once you switch over to that fully uh, like SAML compliant uh, identity provider, uh, all of a sudden, things in SharePoint start to work in a different way, like the people picker, right? So we've had all sorts of uh, people picker problems in the past. Uh, so, you know, it gets really interesting when all of a sudden you say, all right, we've tied this into your system, but let's go ahead and test something out. So, um, you know, I know you're uh, Dan Usher at Contoso.com, and that's awesome, and we can add you through the people picker. Uh, but I'm a huge fan of going to Disney World, and I really like Mickey Mouse. So I'm going to go into a people picker, and I'm going to type mickey.mouse at disney.com, and I'm going to hit the little check mark to validate. And all of a sudden, SharePoint, the people picker, is going to come back, and it's going to say, hey, Mickey Mouse is a valid user. And you go, hmm, Mickey Mouse isn't in my directory. What's going on here? And it's really because, well, mm, all we're doing is attaching a claim to something, and as far as SharePoint and the people picker are concerned, that's a valid claim. So it's it it's a valid expression, right? So really what's happened is your people picker has become a claims expression generator, uh, which is quite a bit different than the way it used to work when you just had it hooked up classic or um, even like Windows claim and it was just hooked up to your AD. So all of a sudden it's wide open. So, well, how do we fix that? Mm, we got to go back and do some custom development now. Uh, so we've got to go and write a trusted identity provider, and we've got to override a bunch of methods in there for resolving names and resolving group claims and things like that. And you go, oh, well, that should be easy. I'm sure Microsoft has guidance on that, right? 
Uh, and then you go out to TechNet and you look and there's nothing like the, the, and then you go and you figure, well, hmm, all right, let's get creative and we'll open up like IL Spy or Reflector or something like that. And we're going to hop in and let's see how the SharePoint product group actually did it. And then you'll start looking at those methods and you'll see that they're just empty because, hmm, you know, nobody ever got around to writing them or putting the guidance out there for them. Uh, I know from talking to you that you've run into that a lot of the time on implementations, right? Just going out and trying to write these custom things. And it's become such kind of a, a, a niche skill set. Uh, a lot of people seem to have um, lost sight of that, that you need those things. Then when you come back and tell them, uh, you know, as part of a project or a project planning implementation, you know, we're going to sit down and say, all right, here's all the things you need to do to be successful. And you get to this part all of a sudden where you go, all right, well, we need... Um, X number of hours of custom dev to fix identity within the environment because you decided to go down that other path. A lot of clients come back and they look at you and they go like, what? We're just doing it the way Microsoft told us to. Well, yes, but by the way, there's kind of this secret order of things that we have to do to make sure everything works for you later on down the line. Yeah, that uh, that that bit of information you just said, um, we're just doing it the way Microsoft told us to. Uh, yep, and if they read the documentation that was released back in October of 2010, where it specifically said if you are going to use an all claims environment with SAML, you get to write your own uh, custom claims provider, which everyone went, oh, neat, what, wait, what? Um, <laughs> so that was uh, that was an interesting learning experience. But uh, the, the side effect of that, and there is a little bit of documentation out there, uh, I think uh, Steve Peshka had a couple examples out there, and uh, I believe it was Ed Hild had a couple examples of like, here's the class that you need to write um, to do uh, the actual name resolution against the directory that you're going to be using for your claim provider. Um, so it was uh, definitely you know one of those learning cases of just how the heck does this work. Um, the other thing, though, is this still pops up. Uh, if you go and look at the uh, SharePoint 2013 hybrid configuration, they actually have fairly robust documentation on, on this now that walks you through step-by-step step all the things you have to do um, to replace the out-of-the-box STS with one that does name resolution for you. So all that is out there, it's just requires, you know, a little bit of work. Um, the other thing to make uh, kind of note of is because all of this uh, identity stuff um, is still sort of hosted inside of SharePoint, uh, the moment that you make that change from like classic to claims, it's not going to be instantaneous for all your users across all site collections. Uh, the user profile service, that thing that uh, pushes down like a display name and all that other information about you into the user list, that does take a little while to sync. And those identities actually, when they sync, they also get flipped from those, uh, the you know Windows claim or classic identity, IWA identity, into that SAML identity. So if you're noticing that uh, all of a sudden your server is getting really, really slow because you just ran this uh, you know, change from uh, classic to claims identity, go get a cup of coffee, smile, go get a second cup of coffee, go read Spence Harbor's article about user profile service, um, drink a third cup of coffee. At that point, you're probably bouncing off the ceiling. 
but you know, give it some time to let the identity synchronize up and replace the information that needs to be replaced across all the ACLs inside of your site collection. So if you're running like a SharePoint 2010 system that's got terabytes of data first, props to you for having terabytes of data in your SharePoint 2010 system. Uh, but second, you know, that's a lot of content to replace ACLs across, and that's going to take some time, especially if you've got a large user base. Um, all that being said, though, you know, identity, at least in the on-premises world, uh, it, it's somewhat can be dealt with. Um, there's third-party products to help you out. There's uh, a bunch of documentation of how uh, NTFS uh, tokens are used inside of SharePoint. So for the most part, you can still make your way around and you're not going to be you know, fumbling around in the dark. You flip over to that cloud world. Oh, man. Um, did you, Scott, did you get a chance to look through uh, the deck about how Office 365 groups get instantiated? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty neat, right? With that whole provisioning process kicking off. And kind of Azure AD is our source of truth for everything, right? So everything needs to start there, and then that kind of kicks off and builds out all the other bits and pieces. So some things can be done really quick, like provisioning that uh, distribution list in Exchange. That can happen pretty quickly, but it takes a little bit longer to spin up something like a site collection in SharePoint Online. So uh, you know, all of a sudden we go from this request to having... Uh, kind of a big queuing service that needs to spin up and say, uh, what do I need to address uh, in a number of discrete steps to fully provision this item? Yeah, I, I mean, very much we uh, we tend to think, oh, this should be instantaneous. I should be able to snap my finger in the site collection uh, or this you know component of an Office 365 group that's getting stored under that site's managed path. That should be instantaneous, just in the same way that that uh, exchange distribution list-esque uh, object is getting created. But um, at least in the SharePoint side, we have everything getting provisioned, like you mentioned, from that Azure Active Directory as our single point of truth. That's not instantaneous either. Um, if you've worked with SharePoint Online and Office 365, you'll go into your tenant administration for SharePoint and you'll type in you know, new uh, site collection and you'll press create, and then you'll see a little message that says, you know, your site collection is now provisioning. Uh, it'll be grayed out in your list of site collections, and you'll see the little spinner ball um, go for a couple minutes. Um, again, because all that's orchestrated through some workflow on the back end. Identity, same thing. I go in, I create a new uh, Office 365 user. It takes a couple minutes for their mailbox to be created on the exchange side. It takes a little while for them to actually get provisioned in SharePoint Online. Uh, I think it was a year and a half ago, two years ago, uh, I was working on a you know quick turnaround project, and you know we needed stuff over the weekend. That's my first error, but uh, we needed all these things done. And I remember I went and created the users, and I went to the SharePoint side, and I typed in their names, and it wasn't resolving in the people picker. And so I thought to myself, well, maybe I'll just put the UPNs in and they'll be able to get in. And fortunately, that seemed to work, sort of. Um, didn't really work the way I was hoping it would. Um, ended up opening up a support ticket and they, uh, you know, they guided me through and they actually had me create the profiles for user profile service manually um, and populate in all the information as it would appear in an Azure Active Directory. And I 
personally, it was like, you've got to be kidding me. What's going on here? Why isn't this working? Um, the thing to be mindful of is very much in SharePoint 2013, when you switch over to that SAML mode, everything runs through user profile service. So in the same way, everything runs in the user profile service in SharePoint Online. Um, is what it is and just you know be mindful that it does take a little while for those things to generate and kick up uh the one neat thing and maybe the identity piece that uh, screws with our heads a little bit is when we start introducing microsoft accounts so these are these uh you know live.com outlook.com hotmail.com email addresses um but you can actually use your own email address if you feel like it um so they call those easy IDs, and the running joke has always been there's nothing quite easy about easy IDs. Uh, basically, it uh, creates an instance of an object using an email address that somehow gets verified, and or maybe it's not even getting verified. I think they get verified, but it uh, takes that email address and creates a Microsoft account stub account in the background. And then you can use this for things like sharing and whatnot, uh, a couple years ago, if you called up Microsoft and said, hey, I want to add uh, PALS, you were limited to, I think it was like 2,000, maybe 3,000. Um, I remember just kind of being funny because I called up and I said, hey, I need to add 10,000 users to the site collection. How do I buy licenses for them? And they said, we don't know. <laughs> uh, but uh, I guess it was last year or two years ago at the SharePoint conference uh, with 2013, the licensing model changed. And so if you own Software Assurance and you're using SharePoint 2013, boom, uh, you got as many pals as you wanted. So in the same way, Office Online, SharePoint Online basically said, eh, you're paying for the seat license for your organization members. If there are folks out there that are using Microsoft accounts, feel free to bring them in. Um, but we start to see this, this interesting world of intermingled uh, identity where you know some users can do one thing, other users can do another thing, and it just uh, sort of becomes muddled. Um, but fortunately, you know, there are the Microsoft has been pretty good, at least with SharePoint Online, uh, about the tooling to be able to identify who those uh, those users are that you've invited in. Yeah, it's uh, the external sharing things really interesting. So they opened up that licensing model, like you said, for SharePoint 2013. And I know we had some organizations come back and say, um, that's great. How do my external users access this environment all of a sudden? And you're like, uh, well, that could be a little harder because we're going to have to do some work around the identity provider and thing and everything else. So the, the nice thing about Office 365 was you could share out with a Microsoft account and you would effectively get the uh, the name resolution and the ACLs built the right way and everything that you wanted. Uh, and it, it was just kind of all done for you, right? They had that um, magic secret sauce identity provider uh, that just worked. Um, but if you were on premises and you wanted to share with external users, and even today, if you want to share with external users, uh, they need a way to get in and you need a way to uh, get, a, get a user ID against that user, right? So uh, you can get around that with things like Azure ACS and hooking up to the outside and saying, okay, I want to go against um, an identity system, maybe like Google or Facebook or LinkedIn or something like that, um, and, and let folks come in that way. But then you still need to have all the other infrastructure to uh, publish that site to the outside world. So maybe you need like a TMG or uh, like an application proxy sitting in front of it to be able to kind of broker that request through your uh, DMZ and everything else along the way. 
Yeah, that's <clears throat> like you mentioned. Uh, there's additional work that needs to get done. Uh, that that question seems to come up more often than not, uh, at least more recently, because folks see the Office 365 demos and they're like, "Oh wow, we can do external sharing with SharePoint Online. That must be a feature of SharePoint 2013 too." And then we have to, you know, break it to them slowly that either they get to start using Azure ACS or they get to go out and buy some third-party product that allows for that uh, that external sharing. Um, so uh, we've talked about this a little bit, I think, back in like uh, episode one or episode two, uh, but organization ID is an Azure Active Directory. So you mentioned, you know, a couple of minutes ago how Azure Active Directory for Office 365 is our our single point of truth or our source of truth. Um, it, it's interesting to see Microsoft going down this path of having a directory service up in uh, a cloud hosted environment uh, known as Azure Active Directory or Windows Azure Active Directory. So it used to be the WAD. Now it's the MAD. Um, it's, I guess, interesting to me to see it evolve over time. Um, a couple years ago, if you talk to Microsoft about Azure Active Directory, they would tell you, no, it's a, it's a subset user, you know, it's a limited version of a user um, hosted up in the cloud. Uh, today, if you look at it, though, they're, they're putting all the, you know, bells and whistles in there um, where I almost look at Azure Active Directory and I go, you know, it may not have all the same field information that uh, my Active Directory domain services user has, uh, but man, it's a lot more useful because I can just easily tie my different web apps and services into it uh, using OAuth and using you know REST APIs to make modifications instead of having to go and buy a donut from Duck Donuts uh, to you know get the directory services guy to do what I need to do. Um, just it, it seems to me uh, Azure Active Directory perhaps at some point in the near future could overtake uh, on-prem AD, but... Maybe I'm uh, maybe I'm overreaching things. What do you think? Uh, it's missing a couple of things, right? So we still don't have the ability today uh, to provision things like service accounts in there, uh, like service accounts, say for like a SharePoint deployment, right? We always need those service accounts to drive the actual Windows services. Uh, so so we can't do that yet. Uh, we also can't add computers in there, so that makes it a little hard to get around some of the things. Um, like you said, the development angle for it is very compelling. Um, I think one of the things that a lot of folks lose sight of is that you've also got um, ACS built into Azure AD. So that's access control services, and you can do some really cool things with that. So um, like a really simple demo uh, that I do with uh, some user groups and for a couple of like Azure AD talks for SharePoint is we'll go ahead and stand up a uh, stand up a, a SharePoint farm out in Azure, and usually one of the big complaints is, well, you know, like I don't want to have to do uh, like a full uh, Active Directory, and I don't want to sync all my users and replicate all my users out to a domain controller that's living in IaaS. And at that point, we can start to leverage something like ACS, and we can say like okay, what if we did it the Microsoft way and we just did directory synchronization? So we can still do that in a secure manner. We can do that across a site-to-site a -site VPN or express route or however you want to do that. Uh, but let's still go ahead and stand up a SharePoint farm for you. And what we're going to do with that SharePoint farm is rather than 
porting all your users over to Active Directory, we're only going to store your computers and service accounts in Active Directory. So now your Active Directory is a lot lighter. Uh, it doesn't have to service as many authentication requests. It doesn't have a lot of overhead. It becomes a really lightweight thing to just host an IaaS, right? And then we can just have our servers that are sitting around it. And then what we'll do is we'll go ahead on that SharePoint farm that lives out in IaaS. We're going to hook that up to Azure AD through ACS. So that way your users effectively get this one really nice way to come through. They always come through with the same identity, uh, whether they're accessing maybe your, your kind of um, on-premises or public cloud-based IaaS deployment of SharePoint and Office 365 if you're leveraging that. And then we get a bunch of other benefits kind of off the back end of that because once your identity lives in Azure AD and that starts to become your single source of truth, we can really start to leverage these platforms quite a bit more. So if you look at Azure and Azure AD, once I've got identities in Azure AD, it's really easy for me um, as a developer or as a consumer of platform services to say, mm, I want to go in and create a new um, Azure app service that hosts a website. And I want that app service to be able to consume identities out of Azure AD. Sweet, that tooling's built in for you. Um, or you can use the ADAL libraries, so, so the Active Directory Authentication libraries, uh, which are really robust and they cover you know 99.9% .9 of the scenarios out there. Or maybe you want to go ahead and all of a sudden build yourself like a, a mobile application or you want to build a tablet application. And it's for internal like line of business use. And you want users to be able to use that on the road. Maybe they're walking around with like a tablet with LTE in it or they've always got Wi-Fi or hotspot or something. You say, okay, we need to identify users and hook them up. It's really easy to, again, to use those authentication libraries and say, just go over here and get my user ID and make that happen. Um, the other nice thing is once we're hooked up to Azure AD like that, it also comes back to some of the kind of platform security bits. So you talked about uh, earlier role-based access control. So all of a sudden we get RBAC across our Azure subscription that's associated with that Azure AD. So that's really cool. And then if you want to buy Azure AD uh, premium SKUs, so we've got a couple of SKUs for Azure AD, right, based on which features and functionality we need along the way. So one of the really cool things is uh, the premium SKUs bring uh, uh, right back support for a couple of things. So you talk about, you know, we want to make the cloud the single source of truth. You can actually get it to the point where Azure AD can start to write attributes back to on-premises, um, including things like password resets. So if you want to leverage like Azure AD fully as your IDP, you can totally do that for the most part because a user can go up there, they can change their password, and that's actually going to write back to on-premises. And then you can start to do things, you know, we've talked about like uh, Azure AD dynamic groups in the past. Uh, so having the ability to do something like dynamic security groups, that's something um, that's, you know, pretty hard to do on premises. And, um, you know, in SharePoint land, we can get around that with audiences and like security through obscurity. But if you want to do a real dynamic security group, it's just built into Azure AD and sitting there just waiting for you to kind of uh, flip the switch and start to use it. Flip that switch and just use it. You heard it here first. Yeah, just flip the bit and change AM to PM, and you're on Australia time. Really? Wow. Huh. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, man. That's it's uh, the tooling is there. It's just getting the developers and you know the different folks uh, in the right mindset 
Um, caveat is, you know, as we see Azure Active Directory start to take uh, more and more ownership of different things, uh, we, we start to see more and more of the Microsoft tooling go that way. So I think last week we talked about uh, Office 365 Sway being deployed out there to uh, the Microsoft Continuum of Office 365 tenants, um, which is cool if you like Sway. Um, I'm still trying to find a use for it. I think it's beautiful. Uh, I would like to know how to print a copy of Sway, um, or I don't know. It seems still very much, you know, it's the experience being on the web. There's not something that I can download or use. Maybe there is, and I just don't know it. Uh, but, you know, we have other Microsoft tooling out there. Um, like Sway, and eventually it gets integrated in. So right now, I have not tried this today, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong, if I go to Sway, it still prompts me and says, hey, what kind of identity are you using? Um, regardless of if I'm tied into my tenant or not. Uh, what's interesting also is if you go to uh, OneNote, um, so if you go to OneNote.com, that will, regardless of if you've got a uh, JSON token sitting in your browser, uh, it will still ask you, you know, hey, who are you? What are you doing here? What identity would you like to use? And while that could be nice, I guess, because then you're able to actually, you know, do personal stuff and work stuff in the same browser session, um, it can get a little confusing for end users. So I don't know, just uh, one of those things. Um, but then we, we step over into the world of Visual Studio Online. And to me, this is where things get ridiculously confusing. Um, primarily because the identities, uh, unless you initially provision um, your Azure instance off of like an MSDN subscription and then provision your identity uh, to tie into it um, and be used for your Visual Studio instance, uh, your Visual Studio instance will be a Microsoft ID. So it'll be that live ID that you've got sitting in the background uh, disconnected from your work ID, um, which may not be a big issue, but if you're a large organization and you've got, uh, you know, the zones and IE set up to automatically redirect a user, um, they're going to be, you know, sitting there going, what the heck? Uh, why is it I keep getting logged in and being told I have no Azure subscription? And why is it I keep getting logged in and being told that I have no access to any projects in Visual Studio Online? Um, regardless if you go in and quote-unquote link the account within uh, MSDN, it just doesn't work. And so you end up having to go down the path of opening up a service ticket, having your Azure instance or your subscription reassociated, um, as well as having you know your Visual Studio Online stuff reassociated with that Azure AD account. So seems like there's still some work to be done in that area. Maybe, uh, I guess this is... Microsoft's slowly rolling this because MSD, MSDN Online has been around for years. I mean, I think even back to like, what, 2007, 2006, MSDN was around and you could go in and download uh, ISOs as you needed them instead of having to wait for the CDs to arrive. Does that seem about right? It's an identity management issue, right? So when we talk about like Visual Studio Online, and, and that's, like you said, primarily tied to our MSDN licensing, which can be pretty difficult. So I have a, uh, a Microsoft account and an uh, Azure AD account with the same uh, email address. So 
typically what happens is for like projects at work, somebody goes and they just add in one of those two accounts um, because they assume that's where my MSDN is going to be. And that's not where my MSDN is. My MSDN is associated with just a regular Gmail address. And then I have to go back and say, well, just go ahead and add, you know, um, scott at gmail.com in there and make that happen. And they go, I don't want to add your email address. I want to add your work account so I know who you are. And I tell them, you can't do that because then the licensing all is all screwed up because you want to leverage my MSDN licensing because you don't want me to be a paid user. And they go, well, yeah, so why don't you just change your MSDN over to your other account? And I go, well, I, I, I don't want to do that because that account has been around for so long and it's tied to so many things. Like my live account now is tied to MSDN. It's tied to the partner portal. It's tied to a bunch of other stuff. It's tied to my MCP. And uh, quite frankly, I don't trust Microsoft to let me change that easily. Like there might be a way to do it, but I could try it out and I'm, I'm just going to go with uh, something's going to break and it's going to break horribly. And, uh, you know, I have this uh, innate fear of losing access to all my Azure subscriptions and MSDN and, and everything else that that ID is tied to right now. So, um, you know, when we look at something like MSDN, that can be associated with a work ID, um, but there's no way to automatically do it. It's all on the part of the user, right? And it basically has to be done uh, pretty much at the time that you turn on the MSDN subscription. So it's easy if you have those policies and procedures in place from day one. But if you're bringing users across from other organizations, or maybe like I work for a consultancy, right? So we hire um, new people and they come in and maybe they bring something across with them. Maybe they had a personal MSDN they want to keep using, something like that, whatever. Um, it, you know, it's, it's one thing to have the policies, but for like MSDN, they can't force you to do it because ultimately an MSDN subscription is tied to an individual user. So whether that's picked up through somebody buying a retail MSDN or it's coming through an EA, like a true up something else, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, that subscription is still tied to one individual and not an organization. It might be tied to an organization for monetary purposes, but as far as what's accessible and what goes on in there, it's just a single user. So people come through with really weird ideas and uh, really weird IDs and, and, and really weird things along the way. Um, you know, yeah, I get the sense when I talk to like a project manager or something like that, they think I'm trying to make their life difficult. Like, hey, just add my Gmail address here and, and it'll all work. Um, you know, I'm not trying to be difficult. I'm trying to make my life and their life a little bit easier because, uh, you know, what's worse? If I lose access to all my Azure subscriptions and can't bill for a week or just let me in today and let me start doing the work and hook up to the repos and do what needs to be done. Yeah, which I think leads to kind of that question of, if I'm going in and I'm, you know, using uh, various MSDN-based services like Azure, um, although Azure really is not an MSDN service, uh, because I have a subscription off of my MSDN account, um, there can always, there's, you know, always issues that will arise um, if I start using, uh, you know, an email address that happens to sit inside a domain that I, I do work in and kind of, you know, goes to the question of, do I want developers on the same, you know, active directory network that my quote unquote uh, core applications are running on? So, uh, you know, kind of the idea, like you mentioned, um, I, I want to be able to get into my Azure account. I want to be able to do the work that I need to do. 
So I end up going creating, you know, a throwaway live ID and using that, I don't use an easy ID because the easy ID will get picked up and try and authenticate back to like ADFS or whatever I use for uh, synchronized authentication or excuse me, SSO. Uh, so what do I end up doing? Well, I, I go create a live ID. I go and use Firefox or Chrome for whenever I'm accessing the service. Um, it seems to me, you know, perhaps uh, maybe the better option is just go segment off a piece of the network or go create a domain linked policy for a specific OU that just doesn't push, you know, the automatic uh, authentication or something like that. But it just seems like a, a lot of extra work um, for something that unfortunately uh, seems to bite a lot of us in the butt um, fairly frequently because everyone says, oh, this will be fantastic. We'll have automatic login. All this stuff will just work so nicely. And then the developers go, oh, crap. You realize how much extra work this is going to be for me? You know those domain policies they push down on a regular basis that make certain that uh, identity automatically gets pushed? I've got to go take those out on a regular basis. I hope I can take those out. I hope they're not locked down and you know, I can't add a site to trusted sites or local uh, intranet policy. It's just uh, I wish there was uh, some extra, you know, bit that could be flipped to uh, make life a little bit easier. Yeah, we can always hope for new bits to be flipped or pancakes or anything else. Um, you know, uh, sit down, have a cookie. It'll make you feel better. Uh, you know, it, it, it keep coming back to uh, this stuff is hard and, and you have to think about it and you have to uh, plan it out ahead of time to make sure it's going to work the way that uh, you need it to work within your organization, right? Totally, 100%. And then it just goes back to, are we you know, keeping the techies involved in that decision process? Are we actually, like you mentioned, you know, well, what is the flow? Um, it goes back to uh, probably you know half an hour ago when you were talking about uh, split brain DNS and how a user actually gets identified as being external versus internal. Uh, a lot of the time, we just uh, unfortunately folks don't take the entire uh, you know end to end solution and understand you know this is how a user looks, this is how they come in, this is how their you know their packet floats through, this is how their frame processes through Ethernet, and this is how the systems communicate. So. Maybe someday, someday that uh, that bit will be there and things will be a little bit easier. But at least for the, the time being, um, there are, you know, are still some issues here and there where uh, Microsoft has made it super easy for you to reuse email addresses as easy IDs. But they've made that at the same time very, very hard for us uh, when we're trying to actually get work done. You know, we've been talking all about kind of the idea identity side of it or which is kind of our end state uh but there's a lot of things that we also need in place to get there right so um uh, you know i was trying to avoid the term split brain dns because it just uh it seems to um confuse a lot of folks when i talk to them about it uh you know if you're not a, a networking guy and you don't live in the dns side of things and you go why do i have to split my brain and what does that actually mean and then you draw it on a whiteboard and they go oh that makes complete sense uh, but there's a bunch of other things that have to happen along the way, right? We've probably got um, other pieces of network equipment that are sitting in line. So we've got to have things like maybe there's a reverse proxy or maybe we've got uh, uh, like web application firewalls or things like that that are all going to need to be configured and know what's going on as well, right? And then we need to understand the... 
um, the ultimate requirements of the system. So there's all sorts of things, you know, uh, when we start to do, um, you know, things like hybrid for SharePoint. So there, beyond the identity story, there's also kind of the application hybrids and how those talk back and forth system to system. And that's, that's an identity thing too, right? But then we've got to have uh, reverse proxies in place for things like SharePoint 2013 that have very specific requirements. They can't mess with um, any of the headers in a request. They have to pass things through as is. Um, all sorts of just little things that kind of um, crop up and get in the way. So everybody needs to take a step back and really read the uh, planning documentation for things when they sit down and do it. Um, and they really have to have a, a great sense of uh, what's going to happen um, when they click certain buttons and do certain things, right? Because uh, th there's nothing worse than standing it up and going like, all right, everybody, go ahead and go uh, uh, go hit what you need to hit. And then mm, guess what? It just doesn't work because we forgot to do uh, this one step here that we missed. Yeah, that I think that one comes up far more often than not when folks say we want to be cutting bleeding edge, um, you know, on SharePoint 2010, and they say let's use SAML, and they go down the path and they you know set things up to properly uh, have name resolution, all that jazz, and then they go, why doesn't uh, performance point services work? And you turn and say, well, performance point services works. It's just the report builder that you need to download doesn't understand uh, SAML claims, so sorry, it can't actually download for you. <laughs> um, or, you know, for instance, uh, SQL reporting services, I think, uh, unless you're running, is it SQL Server 2012 R2? Uh, is claims aware, but versions before that were pseudo claims aware, so they, you know, still uh, didn't quite understand what that, uh, that full-up SAML claim was, and you just uh, you ran into issues when folks would be like, well, why don't my reports work? What, what's going on? Um, so, like you said, you know, reading through all the documentation on authentication planning and understanding the ramifications is key. Um, but I think that I hate to say it, that goes across the board for all documentation that seems to be out there. Um, probably, especially for folks hopping on board with SharePoint Online, um, understanding and reading through the service description. And understanding, you know, here's what this means. Uh, here's how the system works because we're using online and we're using uh, synchronized identity. Um, there are things that uh, just have to be taken into account. Yeah. <laughs> uh, pl planning has got to be done, right? There's really uh, no way around those bits and pieces. And you really do. You, you have to have a solid understanding of it. Uh, you know, you mentioned claims aware. Um, so for something like take a look at, um, uh, office 365. So for a long time, office 365 was only SAML one, one compliant. Um, and there's IDPs out there for a while now that have done SAML 2.0. And very recently we got the ability to do, uh, SAML 2.0, uh, in office 365. So, uh, great. We can go ahead and do that. Um, but then mm, I've run into this a couple times, you know, like well, I'll go and do that, uh, uh, SharePoint, uh, ACS demo where we'll just hook up, uh, and on-premises SharePoint farm to Azure ACS and go ahead and do that. And then somebody who's seen that talk or, uh, you know, they've seen that deck or something, they'll, they'll go and they'll try and do it themselves. And then they'll come back and they'll go, uh, it, it doesn't work. I can't log in. And you go, well, how'd you set your token? They said, well, I did, you know, um, I, I did Jot or, you know, like a JWT token 
or uh, I did SAML 1.1, and then, you know, you go, well, what did you leave your token lifetime at? And then they got to change that and do some other things to um, make it all work and jive and, and get to where it needs to be. Uh, it's not the easiest thing, um, you know, but it can be easier if you take the time to read the manual and, and kind of understand uh, what's going on there along the way. Reading, Scott. We just have to encourage people to read. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know if we can make people read. I wish we could sometimes. Uh, it, it would certainly be nice. Um, it, it'll eventually get there, I'm sure. Well, hopefully. So, uh, anyway, we've talked a lot about identity today. We've talked a little bit about some other things. Uh, we want to button this one up. Yeah, let's uh, let's go ahead and button it up. Yeah.